We are going to look at two themes. Overcoming the fear of man. Uh, right now. And then uh, after the break, lamenting to the glory of God. And so I, I, I trust these grab your attention and they will prove worthwhile as we make our way through them. Let's, well, let me begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we, we come into your presence and we thank you for the fellowship that we've enjoyed uh, yesterday evening and again today and how sweet it is to be with like-minded people, how sweet it is to enjoy the fellowship of the unity that flows from uh, being members of the body of Christ. We thank you for your goodness to us and your goodness in providing for us, watching over us, sustaining us and your goodness as revealed in so many different ways in the gospel. We pray as we continue to study that you would give us uh, strength and fortitude. May we finish well, and may it again be for uh, the good of your people, the good of your church, and for your eternal glory. And in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Overcoming the fear of man. And so you should have... How many pages is it? I'm afraid to ask. Yeah, like like a lot. Is it 15 pages? 13. Oh, it's not as bad as I thought. I thought it was 15. It's bad enough. So we are not going to um, get lost in the weeds. All right, we're going to keep it on the main points. And um, really, I guess focus on what is important for us, for our own learning, and what is important when it comes to, to ministering ministering to others. It, to get us off on the right foot, do you succumb easily to peer pressure? Are you a people pleaser? Do you feel like you need someone to respect you, affirm you, agree with you? Is your sense of self-esteem contingent on what others say about you? Are you crushed when criticized? Are you easily embarrassed? Do you lie to make yourself look better? Are you constantly comparing yourself to others? Do you second-guess your decisions because of what others might think? Etc., etc., etc. And at the root... Of all of those lies the fear of man. And so what is the problem when we speak of the fear of man? It's the fear of being rejected, the fear of being belittled, ridiculed. And here is the problem in the words of Proverbs 29:25: The fear of man lays a snare. It's an interesting choice of words, a snare. A snare, this kind of trap is hidden. It is often hidden and undetected, the fear of man. It does trap. It seizes hold. And ultimately, it harms. It is a sin in the language of Hebrews 12.1, which clings so closely, entangling our legs as we try to run the race that is set before us. So that is a problem. The fear of man which lays a snare. What is the cause? Here it is. Simply put, those we fear most are those whose approval we want most. And so you know where we're going with this. Who, uh, whose approval should we want most? God. But if we're not being driven by the fear of God, but driven by the fear of man, then whose approval do we want? Really, man's. And so we see the relationship between cause and effect. Those we fear most are those whose approval we want most. And what is the remedy? Sticking, returning to Proverbs 29, 25. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. There is no room in our hearts to worship God and people. Ed Welch writes, the first task in escaping the snare of the fear of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious, not other people. All right, this is just a launch as then. You understand what the problem is, the fear of man that lays a snare. What is the cause? It's when man is, people are bigger than God. And we now know the remedy. It is to trust in the Lord. It is for God to be big 
people to be small. Therefore, what must we do? And I believe this brings us to our notes. I'm just going to make four, give you four propositional statements. What it is we must do in our own lives as we seek to uh, disciple, mentor, counsel others. Firstly, we must confess the fear of man as sin. As soon as we recognize it, we must confess it to God. If possible, we should confess it to those who will assist us in overcoming it. The fear of man, we must confess it as sin. Secondly, we must condemn the fear of man as unreasonable. Proverbs 10. You can actually turn there because we are going to make a few comments on it. So let's read it now. Proverbs 10, 26 through 33. A really important passage when it comes to the fear of man, overcoming the fear of man. And the Lord Jesus, he's preaching. And in the midst of this sermon, which really begins all the way back in verse 5, but we're just parachuting in. Verse 26, he declares, so have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. When we read that text, right, we need to condemn the fear of man as unreasonable and identify it for what it is. And identifying our fear often exposes it for what it is. It uh, is unreasonable, illogical, irrational, given who man is and given who God is. Thirdly, we must confront the fear of man with obedience. Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. Obedience calls for courage. Courage isn't the absence of fear, but the resolve to obey despite our fear. 2 Timothy 1.7 is extremely relevant God gave us a spirit not of what? Fear. But of power, love, self-control. Three Greek words for fear in the New Testament. Phobos. is always used in a good, it's used at times in a good sense. Reverence at times in a bad sense. Cowardice. Eulabea. It's always used in a good sense. The fear of God. And Delia. It's always used in a bad sense. Before the calming of the sea. Christ says to his disciples, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. This is the term Paul uses, that third term in 2 Timothy 1.7. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, the strength to suffer and serve, love, the motivation to suffer and serve, and self-control, the discipline to suffer and serve. So did you get those three? Confess the fear of man. I mean, this is practice. Put this into practice in our own lives as we struggle with this. And be used of the Lord as we want to be instruments to, of blessing in the lives of others. This is where we want to take them. Confess it as sin. Condemn it as unreasonable. Confront it with obedience. And here's where we're going to camp out the rest of this session. Cultivate the fear of God. Because it is only the fear of God that will dispel the fear of man. It is only as God grows great in our eyes and estimation that man will grow correspondingly small. And that is precisely what the Lord Jesus is telling us in that text in Matthew 10, 26 through 33. It leads to three obvious questions. And so these are the questions we want to answer as we seek to unpack what this means. Firstly, well, what is the fear of God or the fear of the Lord. What is it? We need to be clear in our expressions, our terminology, 
if we're going after something, we need to know what we're going after. What is it? Secondly, why should we? Fear the Lord. And then thirdly, how do we cultivate cultivate the fear of the Lord? So we want to be clear on this in our own mind because if we're going to be used in the lives of others, we need to bring clarity to these three questions. What is the fear of the Lord? So the Lord Jesus tells us not to fear man. Three times in that text, do not fear man, but fear God. Well, what does that mean? What is it? Why should we fear him? And how do we cultivate the fear of the Lord so that God grows great in our estimation and man therefore correspondingly grows small? So you've got your notes and certain pages basically then correspond to one of those three questions. The first question, what is the fear of God or the fear of the Lord? You should um, be on a page. Is it page three, maybe four at the top? It says the fear of God. Yeah, page three. And right below it, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. That's it. It's not very complex. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of of man so the fear of god the whole duty of man he's not safe but he's good c.s lewis that's from the narnia lion the witch in the wardrobe is that mr beaver to lucy yeah it's that's tremendous a tremendous scene in the lion the witch in the wardrobe he is not safe but he is good what does it mean to fear fear god Be very clear as to what fear is in and of itself. In the words of John Flavel, it is the trouble or perturbation of mind from the comprehension of approaching evil or impending danger. So fear is a good thing. Uh, Fear is God-given. And when something is threatening us, when we face danger, we should have a sense, a feeling of what? Fear. And that leads us to take reasonable steps to avoid that fear or mitigate whatever it is that threatens us. Okay, so we're clear on fear. But when we use this word in reference to God, what does it mean to fear God? The term or the expression is actually used in two different ways in Scripture. And this is where it can get a little confusing. You've got a screen over here as well, don't you? Oh, there we go. And um, at times when you read, especially the older literature, they will use different words to differentiate between these different kinds of fear. So on the one hand, there is a filial fear, the fear of a son for his father, versus a servile fear, the fear of a slave toward his master. Those are two different kinds of fear. There's a holy fear, or what we might call versus a slavish fear, a reverential fear versus a bondage fear two different ways of fearing god in the bible and so there needs to be absolute clarity here we need to be crystal clear or we can make an absolute mess of this we see these two differentiated in exodus chapter 20 and so you remember moses has brought the israelites out of the land of canaan right well the lord has brought them out and uh, using moses They've crossed the sea. They are encamped at the foot, the base of Sinai. And there they witness that tremendous theophany, revelation, visible revelation of the glory of God upon the mount. And there's smoke and fire and lightning and a trumpet blast and all of this stuff. And the people are afraid, trembling. So we might think to ourselves, aha, the fear of the Lord. That's a good thing. But what does Moses say to them? Do not fear. Do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Moses seems to be contradicting himself because he says, do not fear. Uh, God has come that you might fear. 
So as far as Moses is concerned, how many kinds of fear are there? There are two ways of fearing. So there are the Israelites at the base of Sinai. They fear God. Moses comes to them, basically says, don't fear God like that. The glory of God has come among you that you might fear him. So basically he's saying what you're experiencing now. Let me go back a slide. What you're experiencing now is a servile, slavish, bondage fear. And you're not to fear God like that. The glory of God has come among you that you might fear him with a filial, holy, reverential fear. We have the same thing in 1 Samuel 12. The Israelites have sinned by requesting a human king. God demonstrates his displeasure by sending that uh, hailstorm, horrific hailstorm in their midst. And again, the people are gripped with fear. Samuel stands up and he says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord only. Fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. So again, he distinguishes between the two. What you are experiencing right now, the right-hand column, a servile, slavish, bondage fear, what you really need to cultivate on the left is a filial, holy, reverential fear. John Bunyan, as he reflects on this, a name familiar to most of us, I assume, John Bunyan, he has a very useful book entitled The Fear of God. He wrote about 50 books. Most of us don't even realize that. The fear of, you got a question, sir? Are you even supposed to be in track three? (laughs) I know, I know you did. (laughs) Okay. Oh, yours is a reflex action? No, I have a reflex. Oh, okay, go ahead. (laughs) Same word in Hebrew. Yes. He's using the same word. Yeah. We are exactly. Yep, the original language doesn't help us. It's the same word in the Hebrew. Good observation. Very good. John Bunyan, as he wrestles with those texts, especially Exodus 20, verse 20, he says, mark it. Here are two fears, a fear forbidden and a fear commended. All right, a forbidden fear. Turning to your notes, I think it's in bold. Number one, a fear with a blank. A fear forbidden. A fear forbidden. It occurs. When a man only fears the punishment and not the offense of God, or at least the punishment more than the offense, this type of fear is merely concerned with self-preservation. For this reason, it falls short of making any lasting impression upon the soul. We have an example of it with the Egyptian officials in Exodus chapter 9. Scripture is full of examples. I'll just point you to these two. We have another example of it in the foreign inhabitants were transplanted by the king of Assyria as recorded in 2 Kings 17. In both instances, we read that these people feared God. They feared God. No, they feared being punished by God. They feared the consequences of their actions. They viewed God as a monster, right? Somebody who was out to get them. And this is this slavish, slavish, servile bondage fear. And the fear we are after is a fear commended. You can skip over the citations under a fear forbidden. Go to the next heading, number two, a fear commended. It doesn't arise out of a perception of God as hazardous, but glorious. In other words, it flows from our appreciation of God. It arises from faith in the mercy and goodness of God. When the soul feels a sweet taste of God's goodness and finds that in his favor only all happiness consists, it is stricken with such an inward awe and reverence. Are you getting it? The difference. I've given you there a definition from John Flavel. You can uh, read that on your own. Just skip over it to where it reads when it comes. See where I am? When it comes to the difference between godly and ungodly fear or filial and servile fear, this last point is crucial. Ungodly fear never makes a divorce between sin and the soul. Godly fear does because the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So that's how you can identify true fear, filial fear. 
it will make a divorce between sin and the soul. A son, writes William Googe, fears simply to offend or displease his father so as it is accompanied with love. But a bond slave fears nothing but the punishment of his offense so as it is joined with hatred. So slavish fear is actually an expression of hatred. Filial fear is an expression of love. How clear is that? Clear as mud? Clear as crystal? That makes sense. We need to be aware of it. Otherwise, we can get, you know, perfect love, cast out fear. Don't misapply that text. What fear is in view? Not a filial fear. Right? Perfect love and filial fear is the same thing. What fear is in view? It's an ungodly fear. And uh, at times, I, I've, I've wrestled with it on occasion with young people. You know, the fear of the Lord. I don't need to fear God. Oh, yes, you most certainly do need to fear God. All right? Well, no, the Bible tells me I shouldn't fear God. Perfect love casts out fear. Complete misunderstanding. The word is used in two different ways. And one is forbidden. One is commended. One is bad. One is good. One flows from hatred. That's what makes it bad. Whereas the other flows from, from love. Of all things, writes Matthew Henry, that are to be known. This is most evident. That God is to be feared, to be reverenced, served, and worshipped. This is so the beginning of knowledge that those know nothing who do not know this. All right. So there's our answer to question number one. What is the fear of the Lord? And when the Lord Jesus admonishes us or the apostle Paul exhorts us to fear God, we're now clear. At least I hope we're moving towards clarity as to exactly what this entails, what it is and what it isn't. We can now check that one off. Move on to question number two. Why should we fear the Lord? It brings us back to Matthew 10, 26 through 33. Let me read it. As I do, listen for the command. The Lord Jesus utters the command three times. Do not fear man. And to each he attaches a reason. So see if you can just identify it yourself. So here's the first utterance of the command. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Here it is, number two. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. There's number three. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. So three commands to not fear man, accompanied by three reasons. As we seek to answer this question right here, here's the first reason. Don't fear man. God's word is indestructible. Right there in verses 26 and 27. I just take you back in the notes to Psalm 119. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Eternity. Eternity. This concept of forever. An infinite duration without beginning or ending. Our God is eternal, meaning he is beyond time. He doesn't have a beginning, nor does he have an ending. This means that God's wisdom is eternal. His power is eternal. His goodness is eternal. The implication is that God's word is eternal. Your faithfulness, therefore, endures to all generations. Do not fear man, for God's word is indestructible. Number two. Do not fear man, for God's wrath is incomparable. You get that right there in verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Just a few th notes included there. You can read them and reflect on them on your own. Move down or move over to number three. Do not fear man. Because not only is his word indestructible, not only is his wrath incomparable, but his love is immeasurable. And you get that in verses 29 through 33. 
a wonderful, I mean, it just sort of leaps off the page as he draws from the created order by way of illustration. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. Christ, reading from the notes, will confess you before the father who is in heaven. This means that on the day of judgment, he will speak our name in the father's presence. This one belongs to me. It speaks of his immeasurable love that is followed in the notes by a few thoughts arising from Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1.18, where he asks, that's not 1.18, that's 3.18, isn't it? Yeah, it's chapter 3, verse 18, that we might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And again, you can reflect on those notes on your own. What I want you to notice from these three, God's word is indestructible. God's wrath is incomparable. God's love is immeasurable. This is the testimony of Scripture. You can go from Genesis to Revelation. And Scripture, the Bible, is is saying, is revealing a number of truths concerning God. But there are principally two. Scripture is really just telling us two things concerning God. And most of what we know then concerning God falls under one of these Two headings, if you like. The first is this. God is great. In the language of Psalm 145, verse 3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. And the second is this. God is good. Still in Psalm 145, verse 9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. And this is why we should fear the Lord. It's going to lead to question number three. This is how we cultivate fear, this reverence fueled by love. It is through an apprehension and appreciation, firstly, of God's greatness, but not his greatness alone. An apprehension and appreciation of God's goodness. And when Scripture, the Spirit of God, speaks to us by means of the Word of God, And the Spirit has impressed upon our hearts these two realities. Our God is great beyond compare. And our God is good and does good. This is the means the Spirit uses to cultivate fear that is reverence fueled by love. All right. You ready then for question number three? It's a doozy. How do we cultivate the fear of God? I am going to make a suggestion. Actually, I was thrilled to hear that a couple of you are are presently reading this book. But this is my book recommendation then for this session. When it comes to the fear of man. It is a little book by a man named George Swinnick. George Swinnick. S-W-I-N-N-O-C-K. And it is called The Blessed and Boundless God. All right. And it's good. Thank you. Amen. It's good. Real good. And um, what George does is um, he takes us on a journey through these two major themes, the greatness of God and the goodness of God. Now, what it's theology proper. It is systematic theology, that little book. But you don't realize you're getting systematic theology because it's doxological. The book is an act of worship and is to be read devotionally. That's why I recommend it. And that's what I think sets it apart from any other work on theology proper I've ever read. So a modern author, yeah, pick up J.I. Packer's Knowing God. It is excellent. I have no qualms with it. If you want to go old school, you get Stephen Sharnick's The Existence and Attributes of God. It's a bit dense, a bit heavy. It's great paperweight, but... um, It's phenomenal in terms of truth, but um, neither of them will move you. 
like George Swinnick's, The Blessed and Boundless God. Each chapter is maybe only two, three pages. And you can read it for your morning devotions, devotionally. And for us as individuals, and then in a counseling context, someone who is really wrestling with the fear of man and has fallen into that snare, and what they need above all else is the fear of the Lord, how are you going to impart that? How are you going to communicate it? Not just cerebrally, because you can sit there and read a bunch of information concerning God out of some systematic theology and will still be as dead as a doorknob, right? How, 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 what do you do? Well, I think this is a tremendous resource where you can put it into someone's hand and say, look, this is now your devotions for the next month. And just read one chapter every other day. Take out a piece of paper as you read and just jot down, oh, maybe any questions that the chapter might raise in your mind. But more importantly, just jot down what you have learned about God in this chapter and what this now means for you. And 50 chapters in that little book, 40-something, I can't remember. But it will take you on a, a, a sweeping journey through Scripture and really expose the individual to these twin themes of God's greatness, God's goodness. And again, it is doxological. It leads to worship. This is what people need. This is what, this is what we need all the time and in all sorts of circumstances and conditions of life. But particularly so when it comes to the fear of man. It is only the fear of God that will push out, cast out the fear of man. So that is my recommendation. What I have given you, the page at the top says a great being. And then if you flip over a few pages, I think you have another heading, a good being. So here's a little intro to what I'm talking about. What um, what Swinnick does in that book. And we're not going to get, as I said earlier in the introduction, we're not going to get lost in the weeds here. I'm just drawing out some main points, some main themes that we should familiarize ourselves with and be able to articulate and celebrate. I was, I was so discouraged. It was about two weeks ago at uh, Heritage College and Seminary. We offer uh, six courses. It's a, it's a certificate in biblical counseling. So students can complete their MDiv with their major in biblical counseling if they take these six core courses. But the courses are also open to anybody with an undergraduate degree can take them and then graduate with a certificate in biblical counseling, these six, these six courses. And I was speaking to an individual who shall remain nameless, although I could name her because you don't know her, but I won't. Um, and I, I suggested to her, because, she said, you know, I, I, I'd like to take some more counseling courses. And I said, well, maybe what you should do is, uh, is take some theology courses to help kind of, you know, give some gravitas to these uh, counseling courses. Oh, no, 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 no. That's why I just did the certificate. I don't need all that theology. <laughs> Can we have the certificate back? <laughs> I am the provost after all. I probably could have done that. Give me that certificate back. But um, I was so discouraged. You're going to do counseling without theology. Oh, the Lord help you. Um, I, I, you know, be careful what I say here because the systematic, systematic theology books that we are usually exposed to, typically so, they're, they're, they're not entirely helpful. They are helpful in terms of communicating facts, figures, information. They are not helpful in terms of moving the soul, moving the heart. Uh, I think that that's in part is, is the enlightenment and the fact that within evangelicalism, we've kind of succumbed to this enlightenment thinking whereby God is a, is a subject to be studied. No, he's not. He is to be worshipped. And if theology does not lead to doxology, it is not theology. And I think that's part of the problem. So I, I would encourage you, in case you lean towards that sister I just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, that you might just, just rethink that. And uh, I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir that uh, theology is so important and being a good theologian. And so what I've done here is just highlighted what I perceive to be key themes where we need to be well-schooled, familiar with these. And these are themes that need to move the heart 
especially as they fit into these great categories of greatness, goodness. And again, I'm going to push that little blue book by George Swinnick because it will help you achieve that end. So let me just, I think there are a few blanks, are there? Okay, let me just give you to those, especially as it, especially the, the notes under a great being. And then maybe I'll just slow down a little bit when we get to a good being. And we'll just reflect on these a little bit just for the nourishment of our own, our own souls. A great being. There he is, the blessed and only sovereign, right? King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. When we are speaking of God, we are using human words, human language. That doesn't mean he is the same as us. We, we need to be clear on this. It's the starting point. Simply because we're hu- using human language to describe our God, that does not mean he is like us. Univocal language uses the same words in basically the same sense. I love my sister. I love my brother. Okay, two different examples, but I'm using the word love in exactly the same way. I love my sister. I love my brother. At times, we employ equivocal language. It uses the same words in a completely different sense. I love God. I love chocolate. I've used the same word. There's some correlation, but they're not the same. That's equivocal language. In Scripture, anagogical languages uses the same words in a similar but distinct sense. Christ loves the church. I love my wife. Is it exactly the same? No, but they are approximating one another. Scripture uses anagogical language to describe God. If we think it is univocal or equivocal, we will end up with all sorts of theological error because it isn't. The language of Scripture, human language, it is anagogical. There is not direct correspondence, but words are used with significance. And they conjure up human experience. And they are intended to convey something, but they are not intended to convey exact representation because our God is not like us. He is ultimately incomprehensible here's the starting point he is the great i am as augustine said god is the supreme existence that is to say supremely is and so we need to be clear on his majesty there is none like the lord for there is none besides you there is no rock like our god and we don't have time to get into this so that's c.s lewis again nor that Tremendous declaration of the majesty of God there in Isaiah 6, 3. And here's what we are celebrating when we speak of God's majesty. He is holy in two senses, in two ways. Firstly, he is set apart from sin. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. In other words, God is holy, meaning he is morally perfect. But God is holy, set apart from creation. This is the second sense in which God is holy. He is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? In other words, God is ontologically, in terms of his being, he is ontologically supreme. So his majesty. This is the first subject, the first theme that we want to dwell upon when it comes to God's greatness. The second is his infinity. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. When we use this term infinity in relation to God, it is not a mathematical term. It speaks of God's transcendence. We are celebrating this truth right here. God is free from all limitation. All limitation. He is free from all limitation in relation to his being. That is called his aseity. God has life from himself. As the Lord Jesus celebrates it in John 5, 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And when we speak of God as infinite in relation to time, we are referring to his eternality. 
Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. We move from his majesty to his infinity to his simplicity. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Because he is spirit, he is invisible. God doesn't have any temporal or spatial limitations. He does not occupy a specific space. He is over all and through all and in all. As Paul celebrates in Ephesians 4, 6. In all, this is his essential presence, his presence of essence. Through all, that is his providential presence, whereby he sustains, preserves, appoints, and governs all things. And overall, nope, yep, overall, his majestic presence. I'm going to skip over this and that. And mention number four, God's immutability. I, the Lord, do not change. As Thomas Manton writes, God's immutability is an attribute that like a silken string through a chain of pearls runs through all the rest. It's celebrated in his name. Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord. And it is celebrated in God's nature. I do not change. And I've included just a couple of paragraphs under those two headings. And again, you can reference them later. We would move on fifthly to God's sovereignty. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Because God is infinite, he is independent. This is the essence of sovereignty. It means he is independent in thought. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? No one. He's independent in will. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And he is independent in power. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. All right. We can skip over this unless there are blanks. Are there? Oh, there are. Oh, no. Here we go. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Tremendous declaration concerning the sovereignty of God. From him, he's the efficient cause, the source from which all things exist. Through him. The instrumental cause, the means through which all things exist. To him, the final cause, the end for which, the purpose for which all things exist. Ten thousand ages ere the skies were into motion brought. All the long years and worlds to come stood present to his thought. There's not a sparrow or a worm but's found in his decrees. He raises monarchs to their throne and sinks them as he please. That is sovereignty. Knowledge, Romans 11.33, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. Just quickly, his knowledge is independent. I think that's a blank. It is independent. It is infallible, meaning it's perfect. And it is immutable. And then lastly, as we celebrate God, this great being, we can think of his wisdom to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Romans sixteen twenty seven. God is wise necessarily. He's wise because he is God with God, our wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Job twelve thirteen. He is wise necessarily. He is wise originally. He isn't dependent upon anything for his wisdom. Isaiah 40, verse 14. Whom did he consult? And who made him to understand? He is wise perfectly. Everyone is foolish in comparison to him. Job 4, 18. Even in his servants, he puts no trust. And his angels, he charges with error. God is wise universally. His wisdom extends to all things. Ephesians 1, 11. God is wise perpetually. His wisdom isn't subject to change. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Psalm 33 verse 11. And God is wise incomprehensibly. His wisdom exceeds our grasp. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? And finally, 
God is wise infallibly. He never errs in his wisdom. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. A great being. All right? We fear God because of his greatness. And in 10 minutes, I believe that's all we've got, right? 345? A good being. A good being. And this is worth reflecting on, meditating upon every day. The goodness of the Lord. Psalm 119, verse 168. You are good and do good. He is essentially good. Essentially good. It's who He is. He is goodness. He is immutably good. Can't change for the better. For he's already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. In the language of A.W. Pink. Immutably good. And he is beneficially good. We see it in creation, providence, and redemption. So God is good and does good. God's goodness is seen in all that he does. We call that his faithfulness. So this is why this idea of a good being is sort of the overarching designation as we think of God. And so many things fall under it. God is good in what he does. That's called his faithfulness. God is good in condemning sinners. We call that his righteousness. God is good in saving sinners. That's called his loving kindness. So many, so many descriptions that we use concerning God they're actually diff- just simply different ways in which His goodness is revealed. This good being. And so you've got those three. I've just given you a few notes in a couple of pages there. Firstly, concerning God's faithfulness. Um, fascinating word, faithful. There are Ur and Aaron, right? Remember this story, holding up Moses' hands as the Israelites fight the Amalekites? We read that his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Steady, the Hebrew word, is the same word for faithfulness. To be faithful is to be steady, immovable, right? When God is said to be faithful, it means he is utterly trustworthy. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Uh, Righteousness. When we speak of God's righteousness, we're describing what God is. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Psalm 119, verse 137. His decrees are righteous. He acts as a perfect being. His commands are righteous. He rules as a perfect being. And not only is he righteous because of what he is, but what he does. Righteous when he judges. And righteous when he forgives. And then thirdly, his loving kindness. The Lord, the Lord, the God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Be very careful to differentiate between human love and divine love. All right. Sure, there is a correlation, there's a correspondence, but not a direct equivalence. That when we speak of divine love, when we speak of the love of a triune being, we are speaking of something that is eternal and therefore is by essence giving, self-giving. Therefore manifested in the giving of the Son and then in the giving of the Spirit. It was this love that led God to give His Son for us. He gives Christ for us in that He redeems us and He gives Christ to us in that He converts us. All right? That was all by way of exposure that if those are concepts and ideas with which we're not familiar or not that comfortable, we should spend some time. We should spend some time in God's Word. Spend some time with that little blue book if you do pick it up. And um, these are the truths that need to resonate in our hearts, grip our minds, 
Because this is the God we're seeking to convey to others uh, in this particular counseling context, especially those wrestling with the fear of man, because it is only the fear of this God that will cast out the fear of man. All right. One concluding thought. The Lord is my portion, declares the psalmist. One Psalm 119 verse 57. He's not an accessory. Like that fuzzy dice hanging from your rearview mirror. It's not an accessory. He is our portion. Meaning he is our everything. The Lord is my chosen portion. And my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. We should be amazed by this God. As David declares, how majestic is your name in all the earth. A boundless God. Boundless in greatness. And boundless in goodness, we should be amazed that this God became a man for our salvation. That he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we should be amazed that this God is mindful of us. What is man that you are mindful of him? Psalm 8 verse 4. Oh, first John four seventeen. Did I put that in your notes? As he is, yes. as he is, so also are we in this world. Meaning what? God loves us no less than he loves his son. As he is, as he is loved by the father. So also are we in this world. God loves us no less than he loves his son. God doesn't love his son any more than he loves us. Because his love for his son is his love for us. Amen. Manton, the final word, as we wrestle with the fear of man, if God smiles on us, this great and good being, if, this God, if God smiles on us, it is enough. The wall of the world should be against us. All right? Overcoming the fear of man. And there you have it. Quarter two, almost. So we break now, and we come back at four o'clock for our last session.